Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, pregnancy-focused chiropractor, Dr. Elliot Berlin. My guest today is a former news camera operator. She's a documentary producer and a mother. She produced a deeply personal documentary series called You Are Not Alone, now available to stream on Informed Pregnancy Plus. Lyndall Redman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm going to have a million thank yous for you over this episode, but I'll start with thank you for being here. Let's get to the beginning. Where are you from originally? I'm actually from a little country town in South Australia. Um, we had a very small primary school and a very small town, uh, so much so that you didn't even have to slow down to 60 to go through our town. So I grew up oh, in a really? little, yeah, little country town in South Australia. I thought that's how all those little towns made their money. People just blow through <laughs> the ticket. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They used to hide behind the school shelters. So oh, yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah. So what is does that mean? Like a lot of space and land and farming stuff or? Um, well, uh, mum and dad had a little block of land, but I grew up in a cray fishing, I think you call them lobster. So oh. uh, cray fishing family. So yeah, I was very lucky to grow up in the country. Wow. Okay, very yeah. cool. And then flash forward, where are you now? I'm now living in Adelaide in South Australia after moving around a lot in my early career, um, but I've settled back in South Australia in, in Adelaide, which is the uh, largest city in our state. Oh, amazing. And uh, no more crayfishing fishing for you? No, uh, no. mum and dad still own the business and my brother still go. So uh, get a crayfish every now and again. Oh, amazing. Fresh as can be. And what are you doing now for work? We mentioned in the opening that you were doing camera operating for uh, news and then yeah. progressed. Uh, tell me about that progression. So I was a news cameraman for Channel 9 Adelaide. I was the only female news cameraman in Adelaide and have been, there's actually no other female news cameraman here. And I still say cameraman, which is kind of funny, but that's what it was always referred to. And I didn't feel, female, the, feel uh, the need change it. Change so. it a female cameraman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the way you weird. say it, actually, cameraman, the end of it could be man or woman, seemingly, or... yeah. You know, yeah, you could go with Cameron. either. Yeah. <laughs> it's that Australian accent of just roll it all in together. So. <laughs> <laughs> works. It, it kind of works out. You yeah. were doing camera operating in the field or in the studio? Yeah. No, I was in the field. So I, um, I shot a lot of what I call death and destruction because let's be honest, that's what a lot of news is. So, you know. What we're looking fatality. for. That's yeah, fatalities, um, you know, floods, fires. Um, yeah, I, I saw it all. It was quite a, uh, I don't know, adrenaline rush, to be honest. And I did an injury to my shoulder while I was on the job. And so I ended up having to step back from camera work as a news camera operator because the cameras were quite big. And so, yes, I had to sort of change what I was going to do. And after that, I got a job working at a paper and I used to actually create my own videos. So I used to do the interviews, you know, pieces to camera and shot it all and packaged it all up and told my own stories through there. Yeah. And that was going back quite a few years ago now. And eventually I decided after a job in public relations, doing video content that I'd go out on my own, which allowed me to work with the clients that I wanted to work with, but also create documentaries. Wow, that's quite the chain of events. So first of all, before you did camera operating, before you could shoot everything on like an iPhone, 
Yeah, oh, definitely, yeah. So you're talking the the massive, what they call an XD cam, so the big ones that you see people carrying around on their shoulders. I miss um, those. Those were great for chiropractors. <laughs> well, they still use them here in, in Australia, so hmm. hence the reason I'm not shooting news anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I can open an office there. But really, from that point, you were already knee-deep in sort of documentary making. It sounds like each segment is sort of like its own little mini-doc. Absolutely. You know, you've got to tell the story in a minute and a half. And when you're filming stuff, you're having to try and tell that story as quickly as possible. So it doesn't matter whether you're in news or whether you're in actual documentary making, you're still creating stories and it's all about storytelling. I feel like that's how it is when I go to the doctor here in the US. I have about a minute and a half to tell my whole story. (laughs) (laughs) And then they go, here's your script. See you later. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So just out of curiosity, is there a highlight moment from when you're out in the field shooting these news dramas? Oh, there's a couple that stand out. Actually, there's three. One was some quite nasty flooding in the mid-north, and we had to fly in in a chopper to get the footage of the town's flooding and the roads flooding and stuff like that. Um, A fire on Kangaroo Island, you know, summer in Australia, there's a lot of bushfires and that was pretty harrowing because there was a gentleman that was killed in a truck that I had to cover, hence death and destruction. And I'd say that lightly because I've had to film it. And you have everything come into your body and in your brain and it consumes you. And the third one would be I covered a gentleman who'd murdered his partner and they finally found him holed up in a little country town. And, yeah, there's a lot of things that I've covered and I still drive down streets and I look at places and I think, you know, I filmed a car going into a shop there or I, you know, filmed my first fatal or, you know, there's moments where I still drive around town and I can still visualise me being there and filming stuff and this is 10 years on. So when you sort of moved into documentary, what was the first thing that you worked on? So I've actually worked with a company in the UK called First Look TV, and they actually produce a lot of crime series. So I I worked on a few of those. One was the Peter Falconio murder that happened in Northern Territory quite a few years ago. He was a backpacker from the UK. I've subsequently worked on like Nurses Who Kill, Evil Up Close and Inside the Mind of a Serial Killer for them. And that really got me hooked on documentaries and that longer form storytelling. Yeah, more than a minute and a half. Yeah, much more than a minute and a half. (laughs) And it really got me, because I'd just been a camera operator at Channel 9 and, you know, you've spent so much time with the journalists, it allowed me to hone my interview skills Because I was always just behind the camera. And even when I was doing the little short form ones, you're still just behind the camera. But having those really in-depth and sit-down interviews is just a whole nother ballgame. Yeah. And I imagine you sort of learn as you go. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big one for training on the job. I think it's handy because, you know, you pick up different things from different people. And even when I was doing just camera work, just watching some of the guys that have been shooting news for 20 years and you'd get to a job and you'd watch what they're doing and then you go, oh, I'll get that shot next time I come out. So, And then you'd be the one that, like, got that shot and there'd be sort of the juniors that are coming in and then you turn around and they're getting the same shot that you've just shot because they're watching you because you've been in the industry a little bit longer. So, Yes, so it's just yeah. a great way to learn and to be a fly in the wall like that, you know, it gives you such a solid background. Switching gears for a moment, how did you meet your partner? 
So, yeah, my now husband, Jamie, he actually sent me an RSVP. So it wasn't Tinder. There was no swiping. It was <laughs> um, <laughs> it was kind of like a kiss, I think they used to call it, in RSVP lands. And he popped up and I was just shy of my 33rd birthday and he popped up and I was like, hmm, he looks all right. So, <laughs> so I was very much like, right, I'm just going to get straight to the point. I sent him an email and I was like, right, let's go for a drink. Because I was like, I'm not doing the backwards and forwards things. If I meet you and you're nice and we get on really well, then we'll go for another date. So, well, so it's we went, practical. Exactly. I don't want to waste my time. You know, at that stage, I was 30, kind of closing into 33. I was like, all right, this is, you know, taking me a lot longer to meet someone. And we went on our first date and we sat down for a drink and then we ended up having dinner. And four hours later, we said, see ya. And yeah, that's kind of the start. And it was actually, 11 years ago yesterday. Wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Happy uh, day anniversary. <laughs> yeah, almost. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I guess you're under second date. Yeah, second date. Yeah, he actually rang me the next night, I think, and said, hey, would you like to go on a second date? I was like, sure. Okay. It took him a long time to ask me, but I was like, uh, and when you know him, it takes him a long time to <laughs> work up the courage to do some stuff. So yeah, eventually asked me on a second date and we went out and, you know, I'd found out that he had kids from a previous relationship. So yeah, that was our journey. I think, you know, we sort of went on that date and then he disappeared for a month away for work. And I was like, oh, well, we'll just wait and see. And while he was away, he sent me an email and said, oh, how do you feel about catching up? And I was like, yeah, I suppose we could do something. I was very like, non like, no, I wasn't like, I think he was hoping that I was going to be like, yes, let's catch up. But I was like, <laughs> yeah, we can do something, you sure. know, we'll just see what happens. Whatever. Sure. And then he started developing into a little bit of friend zoning. So I was like, right, I've just got to amp this up. So, um, yeah, and we've been together ever since. Uh, that's sweet. At the time, how old were his kids? Oh, God. His kids were quite young. They're 21 and 20 now. So, yeah, 9 and 10. Was that something you had considered previously or how did that impact the development of your relationship together? I think uh, the older you get, the more you go, you know, you're going to meet someone that's going to have baggage or you're going to meet someone that's going to have kids. So I was always just like, you know, if they've got kids, that's fine by me. Yeah, because, you know, you are, you're getting older. So you, you sort oh. of take what, well, <laughs> it's not what you take what you get, but, you know, you kind of go, well, if that's what they've got, that's the baggage they've got, you work through it. So Yeah, but it's kind of like, you know, instant family. Instant family. Yeah, kind of. He didn't spend a lot of time with his children because he used to travel away. He was a FIFO worker. So he would spend like five, six weeks away at a time. So he didn't really have his children. It's not like he had them 50-50 or anything like that. It was a little bit more ad hoc. So it never felt like family. Like it never felt like an instant family. Right. Okay. Not like you immediately became full-time mum. No. Oh, God, no. Nah, nah, nah. It was okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Linda, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the beginning of your starting a family together. We'll be right back.
I have an incredible offer for you for my friends at Needed. An astounding 95% of women aren't meeting their omega-3 needs. Omega-3 fatty acids, especially DHA and EPA, are crucial for both mother and baby. They support brain and eye health, maternal mood, immunity, and much more. But it can be hard to get enough omega-3 from diet alone, especially during pregnancy when many people are averse to eating fish. And if you've ever taken a fish oil pill, you know just how unpleasant that can be. That's why I'm excited to share that my friends at Needed have revolutionized the omega-3 supplement with two different options designed specifically for mamas. An omega-3 powder that blends into smoothies and a pill option that tastes like fresh citrusy bergamot. Both are sustainably sourced from vegan algae, not fish. Both are great options for nausea and sensitive-prone mamas. Needed's Omega-3 powder is delivered in liposomes, nature's very cool way of protecting and delivering omega-3 just like in breast milk. Needed's Omega-3 is clinically proven to be five times better absorbed than fish oil pills. The powder is mild tasting and it pairs great with Needed's prenatal multi-powder and collagen protein powder in a daily smoothie. If powder isn't your thing, Needed's got you covered with those Omega-3 Plus capsules, which have a pleasant citrus flavor. Needed is sharing an awesome pre-order discount just for my listeners. Buy two, get one free on either Omega-3 option, powder or capsules. You can stock up on either one or try them both. With this exclusive discount, use code 3BERLIN, the number 3BERLIN at thisisneeded.com. Put three Omega-3s in your cart, use the code number 3BERLIN at thisisneeded.com. Buy two, get one free. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Lyndall Redmond. Okay, so you meet your partner, has two kids, and, you know, eventually you guys work it out. You decide to move forward with the relationship. When did the conversation of you guys having kids come up? <laughs> it was kind of like the elephant in the room for a very long time. Jamie was never like a straight, no, I don't want any more children. There was always sort of this maybe, maybe not. In my head, I was like, you know, it'd be nice to try. I've got lots of nieces and nephews, so it would be nice to have a child of my own. And, you know, we'd been together a few years and it kept coming up about having children. Occasionally he'd be like, oh, this is why I don't want any more children if something was going on. But eventually, you know, talked him around to it a little bit and Funnily enough, we actually got married and shortly after our wedding, I was like, right, it's now or never. (laughs) I was like, right, I'm going off the pill. You're going to have to suck it up. Because he was always like, oh, you know, when I'm ready, I'm like, when's that going to be? Like, let's be honest, when can that be? (laughs) Like, I wasn't doing it to trap him. I literally said, I'm going off the pill. So, you know, this is, yeah. Did that change (laughs) the relationship? Was he nervous about it? Oh, totally nervous about it. Yeah, totally nervous. You know, because he had split up with his ex-wife when his kids were one and two. So he didn't really have the opportunity to be a full-time dad to his kids that he already had. And I think he was kind of worried that if we went down this path and something was to happen and I was to leave, that he didn't really know how he would cope with that. So there was a lot of discussion around about having children again. And yeah, it was the elephant in the room and yeah, I persuaded him. (laughs) I mean, you getting off the pill though. I mean, you sort of, if you understand the cycle at all, 
I mean, that ovulation time of month, I don't know. It seems like he might be like, uh, I'm sleeping over here tonight. Yeah, yeah, there was a little bit of that. <laughs> I'll be honest, there was a bit of that. I mean, everyone's probably been through it. It's like, ooh, um, do I really want this to happen? Because <laughs> you kind of sort of painted it as I'm getting off the pill, you know, let's see what happens. But it seems like either at some point you must have got him wasted or he just totally... I just ground him down. I just ground him down. <laughs> you got him on board. No, I... you got him on board. <laughs> got him on board. Okay. I could see how much of a good father he could be. So I, I wanted him to have the opportunity to have that. And I wanted the opportunity to see if we could have a baby naturally. So That's really yeah. sweet. Okay. And why would you think not? Not as far as having a baby, naturally. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, I was about 38 at the time. I previously had thyroid cancer as well. Oh, so wow. I um, just wasn't really sure. And, you know, you've been on the pill a long time, getting older, cancer, you know, it was kind of like, we'll see what happens. And I didn't want to go down the path of IVF because I knew that would put a huge strain on our relationship Plus, I'd kind of got it into my head that I would be okay. Like, if we couldn't get pregnant naturally, I was okay with that. So you wanted to try? I just wanted to try. And how'd that go? So we started trying. Jamie was actually still FIFO, so he was away for four weeks at a time. Hmm. That makes it a little more challenging. A little challenging because there'd be some months where I'd be like, damn, he's away for those five or, you know, six days or whatever it is, you know, I was like, is this ever going to happen? But we managed to get pregnant pretty quickly, which was amazing. Like I was actually quite shocked, you know? Yeah. I was like, okay, it's happening. We're pregnant. Great. You know, taking that first test and the pregnant sign came up and I was like, oh my gosh, it's all happening. <laughs> wow. You know, my boobs got sore. Um, you know, I started having pregnancy symptoms really early on. So it was really exciting time. Is that what prompted the tests? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was like, oh, you know, yeah, you know, boobs are sore. I was starting to feel a little bit different and I was a few days late. So I just took the test and yeah, came back positive, which was amazing. And how was Jamie's reaction? Um, he was apprehensive. He was very apprehensive, but I think slightly excited about it as well. So I went to the GP and got another test and made sure that it was all happening. And they sent me for a blood test and they said, yep, pregnancy is done. It's all good. Levels are going up. Yeah, it's all go. And as those things happened, was that making <laughs> Jamie more apprehensive or was he starting to come around? Uh, I think it was quietly coming. Well, I'd like to think he was quietly coming around <laughs> at that point. No, I think he was. But it was so early on in the piece that, you know, I think, he, and he will say it, he found it hard to have that connection already because he's not in my body and it was just sort of like, you know, it wasn't like we were showing at that stage or anything like that. So I know he was a little bit more, you know, standoffish about the pregnancy at that point. Yeah. I mean, I think even though you guys have symptoms, sometimes that by itself is not really a connection. I mean, you feel that something's happening in your body and you know logically that you're pregnant, but even for the pregnant person, it's sometimes hard to relate to that. Certainly for the partner. Yeah. Even harder, less to go on. <laughs> but you were excited. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was excited. I was like, wow, it happened. That was quick. I was like, wow, that's fast. Like, you know, we didn't have to try too many times. We didn't have to try and, you know, navigate him being away. It just all sort of happened. So it worked out. um, So what happened next? So I saw the GP and the GP said to me, oh, listen, you know, it's all looking great. So you probably won't need a scan until you're about 20 weeks. And I was like, okay, that's fine. You know, I mean, my sister had been pregnant. Like I said, I've got lots of nieces and nephews. So I just assumed we'd have to have a scan earlier than that. And I, you know, went along my merry way, felt pregnant. I got to about nine weeks, I reckon. And I had a bit of a funny moment. Um, And then I didn't think anything of it. I was just like, oh, that must have just been something that's passed very quickly. And it sort of closed into sort of about 10-week mark and I thought, oh, I might just organise a 12-week scan because I hadn't organised one. Then my, the GP I was seeing at the time hadn't organised one. So I was just like, I might just book in for one because it'd be nice to sort of see our baby. And at that stage, like Jamie and I had started, you know, he got quite excited. We were starting to think about names and we were thinking about the future So, yeah, I booked him for this scan and he happened to be, I made sure that he was going to be home from his FIFO work and we were driving there. It took about 30 minutes to get to the place where we were having the scan. We were actually really excited. We were talking about, oh, you know, it's great. We're going to be able to see our baby today and how amazing is this? And then we pulled up out the front and we were all really excited and we went inside and got the call up to come in and have the scan. And the lady started doing the scan and I don't know whether I just female intuition, but like, you know, she's scanning away and I was like, oh, you know, couldn't hear a heartbeat or anything. And she's scanning away and she's like, "Um, how far along are you? And I said, oh, 12 weeks. And she's like, oh, okay. And she's scanning a little bit further. And I was like, something's not quite right. She asked me to go to the toilet and come back and she was going to have to do an internal. And I remember coming out and going back into the room and Jamie had gone for a walk for some reason. And I don't think he really had an idea of what I I think in my head, I was like, "Mm, something's not right. But obviously he didn't have that same thought. So he'd sort of gone for a walk. And I remember just laying back on the bed and I said, where's Jamie? And the lady was like, oh, I'll go and get him for you. And so she disappeared and came back with him and she started the internal scan and she said to me, um, I'm really sorry, um, it's a non-viable pregnancy. And that was the moment where my whole world fell apart because I was so excited to see this baby and and there was nothing there. Like it was heartbreaking and it's something that I think will stick with me for the rest of my life. So. Mm, I'm so sorry. It's also kind of interesting because when you set out on the journey, you were like, if it is, it is. And if it isn't, it isn't. But it's different when it is and then it isn't. Absolutely. Like, you know, like I said, if we could get pregnant naturally, amazing. If we couldn't, I was fine with it. But that moment where you have all the thoughts of being pregnant and, and having the family and starting that journey and having that future and then having that completely torn away from you in that one moment. It was, and for many other people who've gone through, and I'm not sure whether I'm allowed to swear, so if you have to cut this, but it's a pretty f***ed moment. <laughs> it's, it's not nice. It's not nice hearing those words at all. I mean, the whole experience, my wife and I unfortunately struggled with a bit of infertility and a couple of miscarriages, and 
uh, we were young and have felt strong, healthy, and invincible. And when that scan is going and nobody's saying anything, you don't really see anything, you know, you're just like, no, this isn't happening. This can't be happening. This is not happening. And then they tell you, and I just remember like getting kicked in the solar plexus and that's me, you know, my wife even more so because the baby was inside her and just this rush of feelings of, you know, disbelief, anger, guilt, fear, you know, I don't know how what you just described sounds to somebody who hasn't experienced it, but to somebody who's sort of experienced it, I could just relate a thousand percent. At that time, had you known anybody who had a miscarriage or who had talked I, about it? Yeah. Well, I knew one person, one of my friends had gone through a miscarriage and I actually still remember the phone call I had with her uh, when I found out, like I rang her, she, it was close to her birthday and I said, oh, happy birthday. And, you know, how's the pregnancy going? Because she told me she was pregnant and she goes, oh, we've lost the baby. And I just remember going, what the hell do you say to someone? Like in, in my head, I remember thinking that's shit. But she was the only person I'd ever known that it happened to. Like as far as I knew, like none of my family had been through one. She was one person. So I didn't realise exactly how many people and how many families and, you know, partners and wives and how many people had actually gone through it. Like I, I had no idea up until that point. Almost like it's a normal part of having kids. It is, but it's something we still don't talk about. Like, you know, I always say to people, you know, that child was loved. Like it doesn't matter that you never gave birth to that child. That that moment that you find that positive pregnancy test and the moment you hold that and you, you're already thinking nine months down the track sure. because you wanted that, you want that baby, you know, it's yours and it doesn't matter how far along it is. No, I mean, I always wonder this at a birth as a doula, at a birth when this baby comes out, and especially if I'd seen that person during the whole pregnancy, you know, and symptoms come up and the sciatica and the difficulty eating and the heartburn moving around, and then you're in labor and this kid is like, you know, pushing its way through your body and all sorts of things, and they come out and you just love them so much, like, why? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you little monster, I hate you. But the truth is, from the second that you feel that life and you connect with that life, it's like that. It's this incredible just natural bond that you have and so for it to be taken away even early on it can be very very painful and for a myriad of reasons it's not talked about that much and so you assume oh, i'm broken there's something wrong with me like why did this happen to me the one person who it happens to happens to be me but it's really not like that yeah well i remember working like a five-day straight job not long beforehand and i kept thinking oh it must have been me i must have worked too hard yeah, I had so much guilt and so much thought that there was something I'd done wrong. And I still remember, you know, two o'clock in the morning, penning a text message to all of my friends because I was also of the opinion, like, I'll tell people early because I think I was kind of like, if something was to happen, even though I didn't know a lot about miscarriage, I'd want people to know. And so I'd told quite a few of my friends that we were pregnant. So at two o'clock in the morning, I penned because I couldn't sleep because I was devastated and, you know, I just couldn't sleep and I just needed to get it out. And so I pinned this text message and I woke up in the morning and I just shot it to all of my friends and I said, this is what's happened. Please don't contact me. I know you love me. I'll be in touch, you know, because I was like, oh, I'm going to work the next day. So this was a Tuesday. I had a full day booked on the Wednesday and I had to front up to clients and 
be, you know, happy and chirpy and try not to let it get to me, even though I spent the whole day going, you know, I don't, you know, have this pregnancy, all the pregnancy hormones, but there's nothing there. And yeah, it was, it was a pretty horrid day actually on the, the day I after. I can't even imagine how it doesn't fully consume you. Yeah. I couldn't believe I actually got up and went to work and it was quite interesting though that day. I had to make a lot of phone calls. I had to obviously get into obstetricians and that's like another story which you can ask me about. But I remember, you know, having to do all those things and and I remember actually talking to one of my clients and I just said, oh, we're going to have to move something. And she's like, oh, why? And I'm like, oh, we just found out she'd, I've miscarried. And she was like, oh, I had one like a month ago. And I was like, oh, okay. Hmm. I mean, at what point did you decide to make a film about it? Um, I was fairly consumed about my own thing for, you know, obviously I had to book in for a DNC, had to get all that sort of stuff. And I was very structured about all that. And then the following Tuesday, so literally a week after I miscarried another very good friend of mine, who's a filmmaker as well. She had told me that she was pregnant. We were nine weeks same time. So within a week of each other. And she contacted me and she said, oh, it's happened to me. I've just had a miscarriage. And I was like, far out. Because by this stage, I'd spoken to so many other people and like, oh yeah, you know, you would get stories of like, oh yeah, my wife had five. And I was just like, why don't we talk about this? Like, why is it still something that we either sweep under the rugs and I can understand why there's some women out there that don't want to talk about it because it is bloody hard to talk about. But I was just like, why is it still this sort of taboo subject of, you know, you don't want to discuss it you don't want to talk about it, almost like, you know, move on. And I just couldn't move on. And I think I just couldn't understand why we still didn't talk about it. All right, let's take another little break. And when we come back, we'll find out how both your journey and the film you're not alone unfolded <laughs> welcome back to the informed pregnancy podcast we're talking to lyndall redmond okay so you had your unfortunate first pregnancy and in miscarriage at around nine or ten weeks and after realizing that you're not alone you kind of were sparked to get the conversation going so that other people realize that they're not alone. Yeah, and that's where the documentary started. I was searching for content and some way to understand about miscarriage and about what I was going through, and I didn't want to read like endless streams of like medical jargon. I just wanted to understand that what I was feeling at the time was okay. It was okay to be how I was feeling because other people had gone through the same things. And I know everyone has different relationships with their miscarriage, but I just wanted something to help me. And so I was like, well, how can I do that to help other people? And I thought, well, why not use the skills that I have and do a documentary and try and tell other people's stories about miscarriage and have people watch it and go, you know what, it's okay to feel crap and it's okay to be crying and it's okay to have all these emotions. So yeah, it's where the documentary came from. During that time, did you guys talk about trying again? We did. And that was another, you know, conversation because obviously we'd had that really high of, yes, we're pregnant and we're going to have a child. And then that extreme low of, you know, it wasn't meant to be. And 
Jamie was back doing FIFO again and every time within my cycle he was away and in the end I just went, you need to get another job because I didn't want to have to sit around and wait for him and see every month go past. That yeah, we the calendar try. go by. But also not pressure him into it, not pressure him to have sex all the time when he came back because I didn't want him to feel that pressure, but there was pressure and it was just this constant because as much as I was like, oh, you know, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, doesn't. When it's happened once and you have that glimmer of hope, you want that again. So you want to be able to keep trying. You want to see if it's going to happen again. Did it? It did. So eventually we got pregnant a second time. Once again, boobs were sore, had all those feelings. You know, I knew my cycle. I think I was not promoting any app, but I was on an app that told me when I was cycles and when everything was happening. So I took a test the day I should have had my period and it came back positive. And I was like, okay, great. It's happened again. Little bit of trepidation, but excitement. And I took a photo of the pregnancy. I sent it to my husband while he was at work. At this stage, he'd changed jobs. And he was like, oh, okay, we're on again. Yeah, so I went and had my tests and had a blood test done. And then I had to go away for work. And I was on an iron ore barge about four hours north of Adelaide in the middle of an ocean on the hottest day on record. I think it was something like 48 or 49 degrees. So I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. Wow. But it's- well, that's almost 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, so it was bloody hot and I was in full PPE on this barge working and I had to ring the doctor to get like confirmation that we were definitely pregnant, it was all happening. And I remember ringing the GP clinic and they were like, oh, yeah, it's all come back, you're positive, you know, it's all pregnancy, but the levels are a little bit low. And I was like, oh, well, it's super early, so no worries. I had a little bit of spotting and I was like, oh, you know, I've got a little bit of spotting and she's like, oh, that's normal that early on. So I didn't sort of think too much of it. Worked the rest of the day, probably had heat stroke. It was ridiculous. And I got up the next morning and it was more than spotting. Oh, so, no. So as much as it was like literally a week, I still remember just sitting in the hotel room going, it's happened again, like we're miscarrying again. And while I didn't have the amount of time to get connected, you know, still had that joy of being pregnant and then that low of not being pregnant And so I got my phone out and I recorded myself in that moment of, yeah, it was pretty tough, but I was kind of like, if I'm going to get other people to tell their stories about their own miscarriage, I need to tell mine. And as much as I was always like, I'm just behind the camera, I knew in that moment that our story was going to have to be quite solidly through the series. So I was like, I have to capture this moment. Well, I mean, that moment in that first episode is so powerful. And I was actually wondering to myself, why would you film that? (laughs) And now I have a better understanding of the things that led up to that. And like you said, it's one idea to go through it, feel it, and want to help other people who may go through it and feel it. But to do it by sharing your own personal story is very different than making a film about other people. Yeah, it was a tough decision, but there was no one else that was going to have those moments that we could capture at that time. And I remember talking to my producers and they were, they were on the journey with me the whole way. And we'd sort of said, listen, you know, if it happens, 
you got to record it. And I was like, okay. So that was in my head as like, I didn't care what I looked like on camera. And my sister would say I'm an ugly crier, but I was like, I have to capture that moment because that's the moment that's real. And you can't fake that. You can't reshoot that. It's that moment that so many other men and women have gone through. Yeah. Why did you decide to do it as a series as opposed to like a feature length doc? Um, I explored a lot of different opportunities and then I went to a documentary conference in Melbourne because I really wanted to get it up and I really wanted this story to be told. And I met with the Screen Australia, the funding body, national funding body, and they were the ones that actually drove it towards being a series rather than being a broadcast you know, half hour or hour or anything like that. So they were the ones that sort of said, hey, have you thought about doing a series and putting it online? And I was like, oh, I don't know why I haven't because most of my other content was online content. So, yeah, so they were sort of the driving force behind the series. And once we sort of decided that, then it was a matter of finding people that were willing to share their stories too. And all the while during the pandemic. Well, it started before the pandemic. so just after the documentary conference, like literally just after the documentary conference, I'd said to Jamie, I'm like, right, I'm away for this conference. There is no way we're getting pregnant this month. And I was about to celebrate my 40th birthday and I was like, no, we're not getting pregnant this month. It's all good. Yeah. Hilariously, I was away five days and either before or after that, we got pregnant. Um, oh, wow. Like, yes. And I think because I'd taken that kind of, like it was literally, I took the stress away. I was like, nah, it's not going to happen this month, but it did. And yeah, I had to celebrate my 40th birthday with no alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> I was devastated. So is that um, still pre-COVID? That was pre-COVID. Yeah. 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 So we didn't actually start shooting most of it until, yeah, I got pregnant and had my little boy. Oh, wow. Well, so we shot of some of we shot some <laughs> yeah. of my journey. Yes, I was filming little elements of my journey as we went. So you know those moments where I had cramps or a little bit of spotting. I was filming all those bits and pieces, and then I remember saying to the hospital, I rang the hospital because we had a, had to have a C section, and I rang the hospital. I said, "Oh, I want to film my birth," and they were like, "Oh." oh, we don't really normally do that, but I'd clued my obstetrician in and he was like, yeah, yeah, no, nah, it'd be fine. Yeah. So they were the only bits that we sort of had filmed prior to the pandemic. And then, of course, yeah, the pandemic happened and I had to try and film everything in isolation, so, which was kind That's of fun. So crazy. I love how you just were like, yeah, then I got pregnant and had my baby and I'm like, falling over here <laughs> but you're just like a matter of fact about it for one thing congratulations thank you now how old is your little guy my little guy is now three so yeah he's a bundle of energy actually <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me linda I'm, yeah. I'm apple tree situation so a couple of questions <laughs> i mean during your pregnancy with him was there a point you know, the first trimester must have been nerve wracking. Was there a yeah. point where things started to feel like more settled? Like, okay, this is going to work out. I think I wasn't settled until we had 20 week scan. I wasn't settled until we had a 20 week scan because I was like, right, I'm going to make sure this thing is working. 
I remember going, right, I want a seven-week scan. And I remember them having to do an internal for that one. I had my sister come because Jamie was away for work. And I remember them having to do an internal for that one. I was like, oh, shit. As soon as she said, I'm doing an internal, I went, this is going to happen again. Like, you know, Uh, and then she came back, oh, no, there it is. There's your heartbeat. And I was like, okay. Didn't have that before. I was like, okay. What? Because um, <laughs> yeah. it's like surprising. <laughs> what do you mean? I'm not used to this. Good news. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think about a week or two later, I had some spotting. And so I was stressing out again. Oh, my goodness. And so I ended up at the hospital and they did another scan and they're like, no, no, it's all good. And I was like, okay. And I remember sitting there and there's actually some shots in the doco of Jamie sort of sitting on a chair because I had to ring him. I was like, you've got to come to the women's and children's, blah, blah, blah. And he came and, you know, and we heard the heartbeat and he could see a bit and he's like, oh, okay, this is actually happening now. You know, and that was the first time that he'd actually seen it and heard it. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. And then we had a 12-week scan because I was like, right, I'm just going to keep my, <laughs> keep, keep going. Um, keep going, just making sure it's there. And that was, you know, even better to see because you could see a bit more. And, yeah, just hearing the heartbeat, you just sort of go, that weight because you start with the scan you hear the heartbeat and you see the image and you go oh it's all good that one's all good and then we got to the 20 week scan and you could really see and he was very active and yeah it was great and I was like okay this is great it's all happening so yeah and then they were like oh by the way you might have to have a c-section I was like great (laughs) (laughs) why did you almost have to have a cesarean birth yeah, so the first time I think the sack was a little bit too low, so they weren't sort of sure whether that was going to move. And then about 30 or 32 weeks we went in for another scan and Lincoln had done a few somersaults and turned around and got the cord wrapped around himself <laughs> twice. Not once but twice. Mm. But he was also in the pike position, so he had bum down, head up. Oh, Frank Bridge. So, and I was like, this is great because then I at least knew when it was all happening. I could wind up work because I work for myself. So I was kind of like, oh, this is good. I'm quite okay with having a C-section because I could plan. So I didn't have to worry about going, oh, no, we're in labour. Oh, wait, did that happen? No. Oh, God, no. There was a few moments where I was like, oh, please don't go into labor. I didn't want to go into it. But no, no, that didn't happen. I never had contractions or anything like that. We literally had a lovely dinner out the night before he was born and then uh, got up in the morning, went, right, we're having a baby today. And we're all very excited. We you know, had the you know, nursery kind of set and it was like, yep, yeah, okay, it's all happening. Walked in there. Yeah. Oh, we're having a baby. So yeah, it was very kind of chilled really. Yeah. There are definitely upsides and downsides to the different modes of delivery. I have a few questions for you to round this down here. Number one, you also captured other people's stories. Yes. And it must be just interesting to be on both sides of the camera. It was probably hard being on both sides of the camera. Because I was feeling their pain when they were talking about their own miscarriage, remembering my miscarriages. So every interview we did, like I was sobbing behind the cameras and also heartwarmed that these people would share their stories with us to be able to tell them to the to wider community. And after that whole journey, your personal journey and your journey making You Are Not Alone, do you have any advice either way? 
for someone who's had or is having a miscarriage, but then also for the people around them. Is there any right thing to say or not say, to do or not do? You know, it's going to be different from person to person, but just from your experiences. From my experiences, for someone who's gone or going through a miscarriage, give yourself the time to grieve. I didn't, and it really hit me probably a few months afterwards because I I literally threw myself into work and went, right, if I just work hard enough and long enough, I will just forget about it. You don't. And for people that, you know, the wider family network, you know, it's okay to go, you know what, that's just fucked. Because we don't want your sympathy. We don't want you to go, oh, but it's okay because you could get pregnant. We don't want to hear, you know, Mm. you can always just try again. You know, you don't want to hear any of that. You just want to literally have someone go, that's just fucked. You know, I shouldn't probably swear, but it is. Oh, it's just, it's a terrible group of people that you've bonded to because no one ever wants to go through it and no one wants to experience it. But unfortunately, there's so many people that do and we don't want to hear all the, you know, oh, it's great. You could get pregnant naturally. We don't want to hear it. Thanks. Yeah. We just Uh, want to hear it's. Yeah. Yeah. You know, based on what you've told me, I'm going to write a series of cards. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Lyndall, it's a very powerful docuseries that you made and it's raw and real. It's from your heart and soul and also the other people that you've brought into it. And I deeply appreciate you making it. And I deeply appreciate you sharing it with us at Informed Pregnancy. And I just really wanted to thank you and Jamie for sharing your story and for making You Are Not Alone and for sharing it with us on Informed Pregnancy Plus, but also all the other men and women who share their story with you or through you with us. Yeah, it was amazing to be able to tell the stories of Christy and and a lot of the others, Libby, and yeah, there is some amazing stories and it's well worth a watch whether you've been through miscarriage or know someone who's going through it. Uh, Thank you again and thank them for me. And then to our listeners, if you would like to see this film, You're Not Alone, which I recommend for anybody who knows anybody who has had children are going to have children or having children now. It's a conversation that needs to be had, not just among the club, the group of people who've experienced miscarriage. It needs to be a broader conversation that we all have. And yeah, I think you'll benefit a lot from watching it. You can see it at informedpregnancy.tv or on the apps on Android, Apple, and Roku. And you can find all of our other programming at informedpregnancy.com. I got a whole lot of questions for you.